So at the ripe age of 23, right out of college, my wife and I bought a tanning salon. That's actually not very well known, but we did buy a tanning salon and I call it my wife's MBA because it cost us as much as one. Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Kenny Wolf with me here today, and you can learn more about him and his team at wolf-investments.com. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes, but we're going to be talking about all things multifamily investing here today, and I appreciate you giving me some time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, J.D. I appreciate you having me on. I have to ask, multifamily investing is something that seems to be aspirational, especially when it comes to first-time investors. It's like we're playing a big game of Monopoly, if you will. We're going to trade up to that one day. What was your path to multifamily investing? I've actually never owned a single family rental in obviously my own house I've lived in. So I jumped right into multifamily. I went from zero units to 76. And really that was because I wanted to scale up quickly. I saw the, the scalability loans are better. The only kind of hurdle for folks is how much money can you raise or bring to the table? So I ended up going the syndication route. I've been syndicating since 2012 in the business since 2010, but 2012 did my first syndication and really brought together, I think 10 investors on that first deal, bought 76 units in Wiley, Texas. If you don't mind me asking, then you jumped right into multifamily what was your progress to prepare for it and get all your ducks in a row? And how did that process look? Sure. So before that, I was uh, I was actually a CFO of an oil and gas company at the age of 28. So I got a, I was quick to move up in the ranks in that oil and gas business. But um, anyway, saw that was coming to an end, wanted to get out of the oil and gas business. It's always feast or famine in that industry. So I want something more, a little less cyclical. Everything has cycles, but nothing like oil and gas. And talked to some, a trust fund kid. She was a family friend. I said, I want to be like you when I grow up. Where do you invest? How do you get cash flow? And she pointed me to multifamily syndication. She did it passively. I wasn't, I didn't have her money behind me just to do it passively to hit my goals and went the syndication route and led the charge on that. So really that was what for me. So I jumped into multifamily syndications here in Dallas, Fort Worth as a passive. And so that's where I learned because I knew I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know who to have on the team. I didn't know some accounting background so I could read the financials very easily. That was a leg up, but I didn't know management companies, the insurance, the mortgage brokers, all that. Those two investments, great way to team me up to be a syndicator, my third multifamily and the lead on that. And then that second one too is something that a lot of folks or folks don't know or, or probably need guidance on is that second deal was a Fannie Mae loan. And so me being a passive in that Fannie Mae loan allowed me to get a non-recourse Fannie Mae loan on the first syndication deal. Okay. And this is really interesting that you jumped, first of all, jumped right into multifamily investing like this. And then secondly, you jumped right into syndication so quickly. Did you go through some sort of mentorship program? I know you provide some, you have a summit coming up actually in November and then again in February to provide this type of education for people, but did you go through some sort of mentorship yourself? Yeah, I did. I'm at, I'm, I'm a alumni from two, actually. So I started with Lifestyles Unlimited and then was Brad Sumrock's first student before he even had a, had a education platform, a mentorship group there. And then 
then we parted away. Brad and I probably parted away about seven, eight years ago. Just went on my own and was able to expand the business a little bit faster by doing that. You move from one industry to another, and that's a, this is a big change for you. What type of aha moments, if you will, did you experience to make you get your mind right to make this kind of a... So I was a numbers guy, right? So I think what really drew me to initially to multifamily, I've always loved real estate and I had tons of books in the library and finally my wife gave me a push and said, hey, you got to go do something and stop buying more books. But so anyways, which is good. We all need that sometimes. Uh, but really it was like what spoke to me about multifamily over single family was that uh, a couple of things, but one is like, I, it's all net operating income based, right? So net income, it's all a numbers game revenue minus expenses and being an accounting background, that really was a way easier for me to figure out than say single family where it's all comp based, right? So that was a big draw. It was, it's scalable. So I, you can go, especially with non-recourse lending, you can be on $250 million of loans and still get loans that doesn't count against your balance sheet. But then also by buying bigger properties, you can afford to have really great on-site staff professional property management and all those things. Because to this day, I don't know how exactly how to evict anybody, but we've done over 8,000 multifamily units. And you definitely don't want me changing out a toilet. So again, it's a way for me to scale, scale up where I could focus on managing the asset and keep building our portfolio. And that's what I enjoyed. And, and that's where I can add, bring a lot of value. Could you kind of give us a breakdown? What are you investing in now regarding, is it A class, B class, C class? And in what part of the country do you invest in? Do you stay in your backyard? So we have a very big backyard. So we we own, we, like I said, we own over 8,000 units in five states. We're on a four right now. So we own multifamily in Texas, Ohio, Oklahoma, and almost Louisiana, Georgia. So those are the four states we're in right now where we own multifamily. I do, after COVID, that really pushed me more towards a BNB. Just a few weeks ago, we bought a D class to, to convert it to an A. So there's projects like that. And so we're still investing in Texas and Ohio a lot. We're trying to grow some more in Georgia as well. So we buy existing multifamily. We also started to do developing multifamily assets about five years ago, both ground up multifamily. And then we're, we have nine office, downtown office towers we've bought and we're converting to multifamily as well. Are you trying to keep them a mixed use in that situation or is it strictly converting them to? rentals. Yeah. It'll be like 90, 95% multifamily and all those projects will have some kind of mixed use. We've got, we've got a few right now that we're getting some commercial, pretty big commercial names interested in being in those bottom floor. And it's almost always restaurant retail. There's one or two, we're going to keep some office space just because it's location and close to other big employers in the area. But mostly it's going to be 90, 95% resi. And then the bottom floor will be retail restaurant. You picked those five locations. Is there a reason you selected those or is there a certain part of your underwriting that helps you pick the next territory? Yeah. So we like those states where in multifamily, you have to focus, you don't have to, I guess people don't do it, but I always thought that you wanted to be in a, in a landlord friendly state. So if they don't pay, you have to be able to evict because I still pay my mortgage and we've stayed away from non-landlord friendly states. So we just stuck to those five. There's a whole bunch more out there. At the end of the day, you can only do so much. And those are pretty big states. So we're multiple markets in each of those states as well in Texas and Ohio. So we've got a pretty broad, broad range. Is there a certain size property that you're shooting for? Or is there what, how big of a deal have, are you typically gunning for? So the, the minimum we'll do is about a hundred units. We, now that's, that rule's meant to be broken. We just picked up two 58 unit properties, but they're right next door to another 120 unit property we already own. So that, those are pretty easy pickups, but we're buying the biggest property we bought today. It was 430 units in one location. I don't know if I'd go above that. It's a, to move the needle on occupancy, especially if it's a big rehab deal. You got to move it 
that's 43 units. So there's somewhere in between is where we're looking to buy, uh, but definitely over a hundred is the preference. Is there anything that surprised you moving from real to real estate investing from your pre previous role? Oh, being in the oil and gas business on the accounting side and doing business in Texas and Louisiana, it kind of prepped me to do business anywhere. If you can do business in Louisiana, it's just a different world out there. Not really. In this business, it's a very, especially multifamily specific, specifically, it's a very small world. So, so everybody knows everybody or someone who knows you're about two people away, one person away from knowing everybody in the business, it seems. So it's a very tight-knit community. And so there really wasn't much difference than oil and gas. Typically a handshakes, a handshake deal. And that'll most of the time here in the multifamily, in the multifamily world, which is nice. Most multifamily investors that I run to seem to have different strategies on whether they're adding value or just looking for stabilized properties. What are you doing in this scenario? Are you trying to find value adds or are you just simply trying to find those stable properties to add to your portfolio? We're almost always looking for value add where that's a big kind of a driver to our business is and con consistently providing value to our investors. And it's really based around just that NOI. You got to keep driving up that NOI and it can be a unit interior program and or our management play. You could just have really bad or they're not capturing on enough parking income or there's things like that and you can play around with, but it's always somehow trying to add value today, especially with interest rates that they've crept up and then cap rates really haven't moved all that much yet. It's tough to buy those yield plays. In my, we actually do, we also buy triple net properties as well. So we buy those for cash flow. If you want monthly stable cash flow, those are great. Multifamily is good on cash flow, but it's operations. So it's going to be it's going to fluctuate. But so to buy one just for a cash flow for multifamily is not typically our bag. No, our rules were meant to be broken, but, but for the most part, we're always focused on adding value to our residents and the property. So what are some of the value add strategies that you're implementing to make use of that? Sure. Yeah. Obviously the interiors, those are the big wow factor. You want to have that. Everybody, HGTV got so popular because you have that big wow factor. But so really it's focusing on when our potential residents walk through that door, what's going to really set us apart and, um, and what's going to make them want to live there. And it's really everybody wants a, a place they can call home and that they're proud of. And so it's really going that extra mile and figuring out how can we fit A-class amenities into a B or C-class. Now we can't, we're probably not going to have granite in a C-class. It's just not going to make sense. But can you add something that, that look and feels maybe like grant, give them some kind of extra value that maybe our competitors aren't doing that glass style backsplash. I love that stuff because most of the time when you walk in that front door, the, usually the kitchen is one of the first things. So you have that glass tile backsplash, which gives them that wow factor. Obviously the bathrooms are a big deal too, but it's really those small things that you can do to set yourself up on there. And you also have to be cognizant of not be over improving the unit as well. So like I said, on a C-class, I've seen people try to put granite and they lost money on that deal. They weren't making enough rent premium by adding that in there. So you have to be careful of that. Is there any of those amenities that you're talking about, those strategies that was the biggest surprise for you that was the least costly, but provided the biggest return? Oh, reserve parking, hands down. That is amazing. We were, we had been using it down here in Texas and we bought some, our first acquisitions in Ohio, we're in Columbus, Ohio. They weren't really doing reserve parking. It was just, wasn't a thing. And so really it was a way to introduce that. I had an aha moment there about a year into owning that thing. We were, I walked in visiting the property, talked to the manager and she said, yeah, well, last week we had two residents fighting over one of the handicapped spots that they both thought it was theirs. I'm like, well, is there a sign that says it's theirs? She goes, no, they just think it's theirs. I'm like, 
okay, let's try reserve parking. And so like at that B-class property, I'd say probably 60% of the parking spots now are reserved. So we're making an extra 30, 35 bucks a month where we weren't capitalizing on all that at all, especially or, and especially from the, the seller. So that's an extra boost to the income and residents like it. It's theirs. They can it's, it make sure that they can quickly get from their car into their unit with groceries and all that. So that was one of the cool things. Just a reminder, everybody, we're talking to Kenny Wolf, and you can learn more about him and his team at wolf-investments.com. So that's really interesting. I guess that's something that's not in my market, actually, this concept of reserve parking. How are you finding these properties? Are they coming to you directly from the MLS and realtors, or are you finding them from mom and pop? What, what are your sourcing Sure. Yeah. So in the 12 years of investing in multifamily, I've had one where I actually got it directly from a seller. But other than that, they must always go through brokers. I get folks that like handwrite letters to me to buy my properties and then they just go directly in the trash. It's just, if you're, you know, when you're playing in this space, minimum you have to, of equity you got to bring is probably a million bucks to buy a 70, 80 unit deal. So if you're handwriting something in pencil to me to buy it, I'm like, I don't know if you're a qualified buyer, right? So there's an extra little hoops you have to jump through to actually buy these multifamily assets and they have to be, you, you got to have qualified buyers. So really it's really through brokers for the most part. Some of them have been off market through brokers. So in the past, I've, I've got a few properties where I actually talked to a few of the brokers in the markets that we were in or wanted to be in said, Hey, you go find me some deals and it's truly off market. I'll pay you a point of the purchase price and then go get as much as you can from them to, to sell it. So I've actually picked up some properties that way. And that was a great tool. Not every broker will do that, but when you can find that it's a pretty powerful tool because you don't have time to sit there and, and a call or cold call, or you shouldn't have that amount of time to cold call these owners. And then if you do, it's mostly, you're going to be a click and hanging up. But if a broker calls, Hey, I've got a buyer that's interested, it sets you instantly. It raises your credibility. Did you talk about one of your current projects right now? What are you working on or what was your latest acquisition? Sure. Our latest acquisition is we actually bought a senior living facility here in Dallas-Fort Worth, right on the highway. We're converting it from senior living to conventional multifamily. So that's going to be a really cool project. We'll end up with about 190 units in that location with a potentially to build a second tower on top of the parking garage. So we're looking at that right now. That was a new acquisition we did on there. The existing multifamily, we bought some, every, like I said, this year we bought a few A's and even a D in the portfolio. And it's really kind of figuring out how to add value to those as well, mostly in Texas and Ohio this year. So D-class properties, what makes it a D-class property in this situation? Is it the current condition, the location? Well, uh, definitely not the location. So if you're going to, for us anyways, if we're going to buy a D-class, I want it to be in, in a B or an A-class location. I want it to be the worst property on the block. There's some really good money in those kind of properties. But eyes wide open, we tell our investors on those, this is not a cash flow play for day one. It, may, it will probably do a cash out refi and get, get back maybe 70, 80% of your money back by year two, and then a little cash flow. But this is a big appreciation play. So really for those, we're looking for a D-class in B or A and a better defined D-class, right? So D-classes, I tell folks, like it's uh, properties where you and I probably don't feel comfortable during the daylight, daylight hours. It's that bad. So that, that defines the D. But if it's a D-class and a D-location, we wouldn't invest in that. D tell us a little bit about more about that D-class. What are your plans in that particular building? Sure. So that one was built in 1968. It's about a 250 feet walk to downtown Carrollton, Texas, which is really a happening place. You've got a lot of restaurants, retail, 
right across the street from an elementary school as well. But so it's an older property. And what we're doing is basically taking it down to the studs. Right now it's all window units in those. And some of them, it's just a window unit in the bedroom, not in the kitchen. So it's not great right now. So we're actually going to take it down the studs, install central HVAC and have washer dryer hookups in every single unit. That's not the case right now. They're going to have granite countertops, new cabinets, new floor, basically down to the studs and rebuild it. So we're putting it, we bought it for 40, 45 a door and putting in about 45 a door of rehab. So it's going to be a big heavy lift. It's our heaviest lift per door on an existing multifamily property to date. But really that's it. Just bringing that unit interiors up to, we'll do some outside architectural work to make it look like it wasn't built in 1958. Add in some, a little more peaks and stuff like that to the roof line, but it's pretty simple stuff. But that's, that, that's the big value added is really its location is great. Just a, it's a poorly run asset. Did you displace or you try, was it completely vacant? Do you try to you no, know, it's very renew cool. the contracts? How do you deal with the current residents while you're trying to do this? Sure. Yeah, no, it was very full. I actually got yelled at the first week we bought it. I was on site walking the property and we got yelled at. But anyways, we actually, that one, because it's a heavy lift, that one, we actually vacated half the building. So on, on renewals, we just weren't renewing folks and all that. So we have half the property vacated right now. The crew's in there. It's a lot faster for us to do work like that. If it's all vacated. And obviously we were up front with our investors. You have a 50% occupied building or property, you're not going to cash flow. But the guys are in there, they're willing to go a lot faster on on building out those units when you do it that way. Okay. That's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about your syndications and how that works. What type of investor do you is ideal for you or what type of questions should they be asking themselves to make sure it's a good fit? Sure. We've got a wide range of investors, everything from teachers to engineers and, and some family offices now as well. So we've Wide range. So really it's our minimums are 50K across the board on all of our investments. There are specific offerings. So if you come into a multifamily or a development project with us, you know exactly which building you're buying. So it's not in a fund where you're, it's a lot, not like a blind fund, but it's their specific offerings on there. So it's really, really that's it. They come in and we get to set up a conversation with them where we do 506Bs, but phone calls or meetings here at our Plano office and get you on the investor list. And you're on the portal, you'll start getting deal flow from us, offerings, and then it's going to join us if, if and when you're ready. Okay. So you is essentially work with accredited investors? Accredited. We also do sophisticated as well. I was actually just on a phone call with, with uh, a young lady, 21 years old. Her parents have been saving some money from us as well, or from us, saving money from her. And so she, they're going to actually fund part of what she's going to be able to fund an investment. And so we were, I was talking to her, making sure she is sophisticated. Does she understand the, she doesn't need to understand the full, like how to evict anybody, but she does need to know there's risk out there. We buy this, just like any investment, there's risks where we may not hit our projections. We may be running through like the cash flow. We may project eight, we may hit six the first year, those kind of things to make sure she understood that. But so we do, we do take sophisticated, not just accredited. We take a credit as well. Most of our investors are, but there are a few sophisticated. So what's the outlook there? Do you, does that person have a commitment to that specific pro property for X number of years or what's the exit strategy? For sure. Them? So that specifically one she's coming into is a B-class multifamily property. That one's going to be held probably five to seven year hold. And then, and then we'll do a cash out refi around year two or three. We try to, our aim is to get about 50% or more of their investment back to investors through the refi. Um, this one, I think we're actually going to hit about 80%. It's a decent value ideal. So it's also get pretty good money back there. And then we're talking to her actually about how to snowball your holdings through that refi. If you reinvest that, 
you'll still have ownership in the first investment, then you reinvest into another property, then you'll have two properties. So it's a great way to snowball your passive income. So really walking through that, but that's what they typically look like. We've sold properties within, we're selling one now. We'll have doubled the investor's money in months. They don't all do that, but we got a crazy offer. We're supposed to close here in the next month, but usually we'll hold them five to seven years. What are your plans then for Wolf Investments? You, What's your short-term plan? And then let's go into your long-term plan as it seems like you're obviously growing at a pretty steady pace here. Yeah, we so back in a great book for any business owner is called Traction, but does the EOS model and all that. So I sat down in 2019, planned that out. I said the, the VHAG is what they call it. You can figure out what the A stands for, but the big hairy goal. But, but anyway, so that was uh, when I sat down in 2019, I thought we're going to have a, a billion of assets under management by 2029. We actually crossed the 570 million assets under management mark back in or September 30th, just a few days ago. We do a quarterly meeting up here and then we're on track with all of our development projects and acquisitions to probably break the billion dollar in the next 12 to 18 months. So we're way ahead of schedule. So I had to reset the goal, but I think a great way to measure your business because what we obviously buy a property, we'll continue to add value to it as well. So that is a kind of a carrot for our existing properties we own to keep always improving and adding value. Yeah. That's one of the biggest tips I can't, I can't stress enough is one, one that you just provided there, Kenny, is the fact that you sat down and created that, wrote that goal down, actually envisioned it. Don't you find that once you do that or go through that exercise, it does become achievable. And in your case, yeah, I mean, that's great. You have to start with the 10. So that, that book has you sit down and set a 10 year goal. And then, okay, so you, that, if that's the goal, then you kind of work backwards and jump. So it makes it more digestible. It's a big goal. It's a big, scary goal, right? That's what you're trying to do, trying to push yourself. But it breaks it down to, okay, by year five, where, where do I need to be by to get there? Okay, where's year three, year one? It breaks it and then all the way down to the quarter, quarterly improvements you're trying to see. But yeah, if you don't have a goal or if you don't set a goal, you'll never reach it, obviously. And it's just easier to grow. And it's kind of knowledge, but I don't think a, a lot of folks like used it, but you'll probably miss the next quarter or two. But in the long run, the year three, you'll do more than what you thought you could do. So just know the balls. That's, and I hate to linger on this too long, but that can lesson there is a lot of people will read that book or listen to that book on Audible but not actually implemented as if this is all going to happen through some sort of osmosis that we're just going to absorb this and it's just going to happen. Right. actually sat down and implemented and did the strategies outlined in the book. That's a big difference. Yeah. That, and then like in, in real estate, it's always networking. It's you've got a network and this is a, everybody who says it, but, and, and it's overused, but it really is a team sport. We're not lying that all everybody that says that you've got a network. If you're just Singing at home, watching YouTube or reading real estate books, you'll never, you'll probably never get a real estate deal done or an investment for that matter. Like we, we mentioned earlier, you have a summit coming up here very soon. What do you typically cover in that? It's great. People make that investment time and maybe a financial investment. I guess we didn't talk about if there's a cost associated with it, but if there is the more times than not, what would you say? 90% of those people that go actually don't implement what you teach a big there's a big difference between the people that attend these type of things. Absolutely. Ours is a little bit different, or I should say a lot different. So we don't sell anything at the end. There's no, we call it the anti-guru event. Not like we're anti-guru. Some of those guys are our friends, but but we there's no 19,000 
$999 thing to buy at the Saturday night. This is Jeff's education and networking. So we fly in speakers for Saturday morning through about noon. And then, and then Saturday afternoon, it's all just breakout sessions. And it's just a one day event. Friday night, there's a VIP networking event. And it's like I said, it's just networking. You meet everybody from seasoned syndicators all the way down to newbies. And we had some 15 year olds that showed up at the one in Seattle we did in July. It was great. They were taking notes. It was awesome to see young people like starting to get into this stuff. I get pumped about that. I've got a 13-year-old daughter who has already started real investing in real estate at the age of 10. And so when you, they can start that young, I've heard at 28, man, I wish I started at 10. But it's great. It's exciting to see just a wide range of people that come to that event. Um, and you meet other investors, you meet passives, you meet, like I said, syndicators as well. Kenny, this was a great conversation. Again, I'm just going to remind everybody, Wolf, that's with an E, wolf-investments.com. And I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. But Kenny, I do have some rapid fire questions as we wrap this up here today. Yeah, let's go. Here's your chance to bust a real estate investing myth. We've seen these late night programs <laughs> promising the world. What do you want to bust here today? Oh man, the one I love the bust is the the ones where they, these, again, I'm picking on the gurus and they are, some of them are my friends, but they tell you, oh, you can retire by two or three apartment buildings and they're more hands-on than that. It's not just, there. there's passives and they're active investors. And if you want to be a passive and truly retire, you don't need to go buy your own apartment building because they are more hands-on than what is promoted out there. I love the job. I love being an active investor. So that's where I need to be. And we have got, we've got 3,000 passive investors that follow us and that's where they, well, that's where they want to be. But yeah, they hold retire and buy two or three buildings and you don't have to work again. The ship my ties on the beach is a little bit of a misnomer. <laughs> Come on, Kenny. It's all mailbox money. It's just short. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What book would you recommend or what are you reading right now? I won't recommend my own book that's on Amazon, but uh, investing in the dream. But one I'm reading right now, I just got done reading the, uh, I love biographies, business biographies. My daughter rolls her eyes at me. She likes all the, she likes fiction. I love nonfiction. I love reading about business books and how they grew their business. Cause that's really my focus. The one I just finished was the one on John D. Rockefeller. I was just amazed at how he did it, stuck to it and how big of a business he had as well. So that's a great, I guess 700 pages. I don't know, something crazy. It took me a little bit, but, but it's, a, that's a great read. Um, not really real estate related, but. I took a lot of points from that business and you can apply it to, to, to your own or your own investment criteria. Yeah. It doesn't have to be real estate and related. It's amazing what lessons you can learn from any, some, there's been some amazing people that have graced our world and it's, there's always a lesson somewhere. Absolutely. What is the biggest business mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? So at the ripe age of 23, right out of college, my wife and I bought a tanning salon. That's actually not very well known, but we did buy a tanning salon and I call it my wife's MBA because it cost us as much as one, but I already had my, so Anyway, so we bought one of those thinking we could, it was a small mom and pop. The numbers looked great. We found out that they fibbed a little bit or a lot on that. So really the big business lesson we learned was if you're going to go big or go home, we wanted something where, um, you know, our goal with that was always to grow it enough to where she didn't have to work in the business and we just couldn't get there. It was just too small of a business and couldn't do it. So we ended up just closing the doors and wrapping that one up, taking the loss. But big lesson is if you're going to do something, make sure it's scalable and again, just Go big or go home. Well, here's a time for a little fun. What is your favorite movie? Favorite movie? Oh, man. I love Fifth Element. Uh, hey, awesome. Yeah, that, that is one of my favorite. I'll watch it at least once a year, if not twice. So it's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? Get started earlier. I was at 16. I was trading stocks and that was back in 
the late 90s. So I thought I was a genius when I grew it and when I doubled it. And then it went back down to its value and the crash. But I wish I would have started buying real estate earlier. I started at 28. I know that's young for a lot of folks, but but again, we're seeing these 21-year-olds, these 15-year-olds, these 10-year-olds doing real estate deals. And I just kudos to them. I wish I would have started earlier. Kenny, is there a question or concept you wish we would have touched on here today? I think diversifying in real estate is great. I personally have 95% of my net worth in real estate, but it spread over cash levy properties, cash to land growth, and then our development deals, which are all on appreciation. And you can be too diversified, I think. So we stick to four things we do up here at Wolf Investments, but but and we won't go beyond those four, but it's really being diversified because you'll have a property that does better than you think and one that takes an extra year or two than what you thought. And so if you can get multiple of those properties going, obviously they average each other out, but also you'll have different capital events as well. So if one of them is faster, we're going to refire or sale faster. You can redeploy that money or this one's still cooking and making more value for you. I think diversifying is key. And a lot of folks out there in the real estate world just think that's a bad word, the D word, but I think it's actually think it's very important to be diversified in the investment world. That's great advice. Kenny, I really appreciate your time. One last time wolf-investments.com. Check out the show notes. I'll make sure it's a clickable link there. And if you found some value in today's show, would you take a moment and share it with a friend? There's a lot of value Kenny brought to the episode and I, I really value it. So appreciate it again, Kenny. And you're welcome back anytime. I hope you'll take me up on that invite. Absolutely, JD. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.